In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be, be to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Well, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And our second reading comes from Galatians chapter 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray that we might hear now, re- read, mark, learn, and most importantly, inwardly digest your word for us today, that we might live in hope, everlasting hope, and that we pray this in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So our Advent theme this year uh, is Let Light Shine Out of Darkness. It is a direct quote from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is not about us. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis chapter 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That is amazing. The face of Christ gives us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Jesus gives me God. And the same God who brought light out of darkness has shone his light into my heart, He's made me a new creation. Isaiah said that the coming of God was like a dawn. We saw this last week. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Zechariah picks this theme up at the birth of John the Baptist when he talks about the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the path of peace. Light shines. Light guides. Light reveals. We're going to find out what, what God revealed uh, to Mary and how she responded in a moment's time. Paul outlined the ethical implications of Advent, of dawn living. In Romans 13, again last week, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. When did you first believe? Well, you've taken another step today. It's nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness, like dirty pajamas, and put on the armor of light. It's always morning in the kingdom of God, so get ready for the day. I think there are three verbs that belong to Advent. It seems that verbs are a theme of Churchill this year. Do you know what they are? Three verbs of Advent. To wake up, Romans 13, to wait for a saviour, and to hope. And those three verbs together mean that whatever sense you have, the way you're supposed to wait is, well, it's multivaried. So, for example, to wake up is more aggressive. How did you feel this morning? To wait is more restful, although it's active in the New Testament. To hope is what we do. Jesus is our light, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Or as Horatio Bonner said, and we'll sing it in a few moments' time, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. So we're spending Advent in the birth narratives of Jesus. Last week, birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah. This week, 
uh, Mary and, uh, and her song. And we're seeing how the first appearance of the Son of God in great humility, that's what this is, the birth narratives, changes life now in light of his second appearing in glorious majesty. In the story of Zechariah and John the Baptist, light is a dawn shining and guiding. In Simeon, we'll look at on Boxing Day, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. In the accounts of Mary and the shepherd, the revelation comes to them. Eugene Peterson once wrote this. He said, wonder can't be packaged and it can't be worked up. It requires some sense of being there and some sense of engagement. Well, we are going there to Bethlehem and we are going to engage. What Emma read to us a moment ago is simply known as Mary's song, otherwise known as the Magnificat, from the Latin word to magnify. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's King James, I think. It's one of the most famous songs in Christianity, recited in churches at evening prayer for centuries. Bach famously put it to music. You might like to say that Mary's song is the first Christmas carol. Of course, when Mary sang these words, she had none of Bach's musical skills, I'm going to assume. What she did, however, have is the knowledge that in her womb was the Messiah of the universe, the hope of Israel, blessing to the nations, the hope of the poor and the downtrodden, the end of suffering, and the end of exile. In other words, Mary was pregnant with universal hope, pregnant with God's salvation. And she then becomes the model of faith, therefore of a deeper discipleship. She says, unlike Adam and Eve in the Garden of of Eden, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I accept what you say is true. In other words, she believes God, Zechariah doesn't. Note, though, the context of the song, Mary scribes or says these words right in front of her cousin, Elizabeth, and the baby in Elizabeth's aging womb, John the Baptist, you heard it a moment ago, leaps for joy. He does an embryonic flip at the thought, the presence of Mary and in anticipation of her boy child. And Mary starts singing, and what does she sing? My soul glorifies, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul, in my deepest being, at my very center, I magnify the Lord. In all its weakness, my soul magnifies, it enlarges, it makes great the Lord. And not just my soul, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, Right where my need is greatest, I'm overflowing with joy in the God who saves me, says Mary. And so my question for you this morning is, how can I find myself magnifying God in the same way? Good question, isn't it? Perhaps you might ponder an answer to it, even as we, even as you look at the question. I want to say from three fairly neat and distinct parts to Mary's song, that we need to find ourselves in God, 
in verses 46 to 49, Mary describes God's disposition towards her. Then we want to find ourselves at the bottom, not at the top. She then talks in revolutionary language. You'll see that in a moment. And then lastly, find yourself in God's story in verses 54 to 56. Find yourself in God, not in self. Find yourself at the bottom, not at the top. Find yourself in God's story and not in any other story because there are many to choose from. Firstly, find yourself in God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful, God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He, he noticed me. Despite my nobodyness. I just gave you a new word. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, humble as I as she is. Holy is his name. By the way, she's not describing herself as a you know a humble person, like a humble brag. She's saying, I'm a nobody. That's that's what she's saying. So Mary finds herself in God, her little self in a great God. So my soul mag magnifies, glorifies the Lord, not herself. My spirit rejoices in God, not myself. Now the word here to glorify is the Greek word megaluno. So you could say magnify, you could say megify. And it is in the human soul to megify to megify something or someone. We're designed to worship. Some of us spend time trying to megify ourselves, to make ourselves look great. You could megify a part of your life, like your work experience, you know, be creative on your resume. That's what that is, to magnify self, to m magnify intelligence, you know, to, you know, I don't know how, you, many ways to do that. Some of us could, and this is a very Australian way, to megify sexual exploits or to megify drinking habits. The very phrase, I had a big night, is along this same language. The temptation of humans is to megify celebrities. And I take it that when we do, we, we distort them. Now, they're willing, often willing, but we distort them because we end up worshipping them and we treat them in a way that only belongs to Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. So it can't help but distort another person when you worship them. In Christian cultures, you could megify a beautiful family or your knowledge of the Bible. You just have to look at someone's Facebook page and you'll see what they're trying to magnify or megify, to get out to a bigger crowd. But verse 46, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord. And what it is about God, it's, well, he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He noticed little me. Mary was a nobody girl who lived in a nowhere town, engaged to an honorable and yet unknown man from the line of King David, but long forgotten. I mean, they made jokes. And yet, God chose her to carry in her womb the hopes of the nation and indeed the redemption of the world. 
from now on, verse 48, all generations will call me blessed. They will. They are. Here we are. Calling her blessed. She perceives, maybe via revelation, that people will be talking about her in, I don't know, Sydney. 2,000 years later. Here we are. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me, for little me. There was an advertisement many years ago, the Nature Valley granola bars in the United States. For goodness sake, it's a fruit nut ad. Uh, but those two people at the very top of that mountain, looking out over this mega view, right? how little are they, how great is the view in front of them? They say, or the advertisement, the nut and, the nut and fruit nut ad, as this in profound ways, up the top there. You've never felt more alive. You've never felt so insignificant. So there they are, little, and at the top of the mountain. This is good news, not bad news. I feel so insignificant in front of this mega view, and in doing so, you've never felt more alive. We come alive when we see a big God, little as we are. And that's because little me is made for the worship of a big God. Mary worships and comes alive, and so do we. If you trust God, if you've repented of your sins, if from henceforth you intend to lead a new life, could be from today alone. If you know the grace of God, then you have Jesus too, and your soul will magnify the Lord first. Second, find yourself at the bottom, not at the top. Verses 50 to 53 are fascinating. Mary recalls the kind of God that God is. And you know this from the Old Testament. He's the champion of the lost, those who fear him, verse 50, the humble, verse 52, the hungry, verse 53. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is a revolutionary a Messiah who challenges the status quo. It's why they killed him. Jesus had another reason from his father, but they had to get rid of the pesky, wannabe Messiah, turning everything upside down. Jesus comes to revolutionize hearts first. And so you and I must be prepared, even this morning, for a coup d'etat, of the heart. The reason why you want to find yourself at the bottom is it appears that in God's economy, those at the bottom are lifted, not those at the top. And in particular, not just everyone at the bottom, as though poverty itself were a virtue, but rather those who fear God, which means that you can be wealthy, for example, and at the bottom at the same time. David says, I am poor. David said that in the Psalms. Mary is quoting from the Old Testament in this section, but perhaps I can sum it in the New Testament. All of you clothe yourselves with humility, even towards one another, because God opposes the proud. It's right here in Mary's song. He shows favor or grace to the humble. So if you want great the grace of God, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, His big hand, little you, under His big hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I've never felt so alive. 
Therefore, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's been scrolling outside for several weeks. We tend to have a striving upward mentality to succeed, to see ourselves as winners, maybe cultural elites. But Mary says, if you do, you may be on the wrong side of history. It is the person who has nothing to lose who is more likely to humble themselves before God. And that's borne out in the life of the Gospels. Tom Wright was very helpful for me here in his little commentary about the countercultural nature of the kingdom of God. He recalled a movie that he saw many years ago. Wikipedia helps me here. It was 1953. I therefore didn't see it myself. It's uh, called The Sound Barrier. I'm tempted to see it while I'm away if I can find it on some streaming service. It's a movie about the first test pilots to break the sound barrier. And in the movie, no plane had ever flown faster than the speed of sound, and every plane that got close lost control of the steering and disintegrated. The pilots would make an uh, intuitive move with the, with the stick, and uh, the plane would disintegrate. Finally, at the climax of the movie, one brave test pilot makes a counterintuitive guess. Every single time that every other plane had hit the sound barrier, they moved intuitively, by pulling the lever up, but right at the time when his plane hit the sound barrier with great daring, he thrusts the controls forward, which would normally have made the plane go into a nosedive, but his hunch was correct, he thrust the controls forward rather than back, and the plane's nose lifted and he went faster than anyone had ever been before. Now the story is bunk, you should know that. Hollywood, 1953. But I feel good. If it were accurate, uh, then it is a graphic illustration of what Mary is singing here, that in Jesus, if you've got normal controls, make them work backwards. Jesus will take his people through the power of the Holy Spirit, through a sound barrier to a new place that's different from Australia, Western culture, all cultures. Jesus takes you somewhere you've never been before, somewhere so countercultural, so different, so new, Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And you can see it, as I said, in the life of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, only those who know their need come to Jesus. Read Luke. Only those at the bottom get lifted up. Only the leper is cleansed. Only the blind receive their sight. Only the sick need a doctor. Are you there at the bottom? Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble despots of the world. Look out. You can see why Herod had a problem, both of them. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Thirdly and finally, find yourself in God's story and not in any other story. And this is, you know, this is my Lord willing, my final word at this pulpit this year. Many great words to come, I won't be the ones delivering them. Um, but in many ways, this final point sums up much of our teaching series this year, namely that if you wanted to be a deeper disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to need to know the Bible. The storyline from beginning to end, when God said, let there be light, and in, in the Revelation, He is their light. 
But that story spans thousands of years and many authors. And it is a story to find yourself in rather than another story that you make up. And Mary sums up the mega story in verse 54 and 55. God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham. There's the story. And to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Simeon will pick up this. We'll hear this on Boxing Day at the 8.30 service. There's only one service on that day. You'll wake up fresh on Boxing Day and be here, won't you? (laughs) Simeon's song, not only to our ancestors, but a light of revelation to the Gentiles. We all live in a story. We place ourselves somewhere in a narrative, which is why your life has a sense of meaning, a sense of moving forward, and we derive meaning from that narrative. Stanley House gave this quote, and I've given this quote before, um, but it's the sort of quote you do need to see twice. And I think it's profound, even though convoluted, but its convoluted nature is part of the genius of it. Stanley Howas said the following of Western culture in particular, that most of us place ourselves in a weak story, or rather we don't have a story. We, you know, we say, I was raised in Epping and and in Western culture, and what job have you got today, and how much are you earning, have you got a mortgage, are you planning on a family, no, what? so what, what is the story, where are the roots, are they deep? Sandy Harris makes the point that in Western culture, we often just make it up, that we in Western culture have no story except the story you chose when you had no story, right, there wasn't a story to choose, but you chose one anyway, because you've got to find meaning. But since there is no one story above it all, no God, no path through it all, you can just choose your own adventure. That's the only story we have. And that, I believe, without judgment, is the way most Australians live their lives. Maybe less so in traditional cultures, but certainly in Australia, just secular Australia. Howard says this, he says, the church does not believe that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. That's not us. The gospel demands that you have another story, God's story. Not that you have no story except the one you choose. He says, rather, in contrast to this Western way of thinking, the church believes that we are creatures of a good God who has storied us through and grafting us to the people of Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what half the New Testament is about, storing us in. Christians do not believe that you get to choose your own story, but rather we discover that God has called us to participate in a story that is not of our own making. Mary and Elizabeth share God's story through the people of Israel. We've been looking at that mega story all year. And as you know, that story of Israel culminates in the coming of the Messiah, God's win his victory over the bullies, the power brokers, the forces of evil, which people like Mary and Elizabeth knew all too well, living as they did in the dark days of Herod the Great, whose casual brutality was backed by the power of Rome. So Mary and Elizabeth, like many Jews of their time, they were hungry. They searched the Scriptures, they soaked themselves in the Psalms, in the prophetic writings, of the writings that spoke of God's mercy, of hope, of fulfillment, of reversal, of victory over evil, and God's coming to rescue at last. 
Again, Tom Wright in his helpful little commentary. All of that is poured into the Song of Mary like a rich foaming drink that comes bubbling over the edge and spills out all around. What we find at the end of Luke's Gospel is that the story is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. His birth, his death, his resurrection. Namely, that God himself goes to the bottom. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself through his blood shed on the cross in fulfillment of the story of Israel and to the nations. To take those who have need and to lift them up. God lifts them up in resurrection where hope comes alive. I may feel insignificant, but I've never been more alive. Where the lowly are lifted up and the hungry are filled. John Stott said, grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues How can I find myself experiencing the same joy, magnifying God in the same way? I state the obvious when I say that you do not have Jesus in your womb. But you do have Christ in your hearts by faith, as the Apostle says. This, I believe, is the reason to rejoice in God your Saviour. This is a reason to magnify the Lord. Let's pray. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I looked at Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Father, we here now commit ourselves to you from henceforth, from today forward, We choose Christ, we choose the light, we choose to live in the light, we choose to be guided by the light, we choose to have the light shine on us who feel the darkness of death and demise, and we here now choose the light of his resurrection and the hope of sharing in his glory. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest, lay down, thy weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. We do that now for Christ's sake. Amen.